Hi, I'm James Chow, and you're listening to The China Current, a storytelling experience that brings you up close with the people shaping our shared global future. Tasman Little, of course, many people throughout the United Kingdom and around the world know you as a preeminent concert violinist who has touched so many lives through your music and your performances. And you've done extraordinary things beyond that. You take your music to places which some may feel is unusual, power stations, schools, particularly inner city schools with children whose parents weren't originally from the UK, for example. And through that, trying to ensure that the legacy of music in its entirety is shared with everybody. What many people don't know is that you have an intrinsic relationship with China at a particular point in her human history where many people from outside of China didn't get the look in that you did and you had an incredible one. Tell us about that. I feel so incredibly privileged that in 1982 I was part of a small group of students uh, from the Yehudi Menuhin School um, who went on a two-week visit to China. Yehudi Menuhin had already been several times and had fallen in love with China, fallen in love with the young music students that he'd heard there and wanted very much for us at the school to have an opportunity to experience something of the magic of China and something of um, a cultural exchange um, was was definitely uppermost in his mind whereby we would learn from, um, well first of all from visiting such a different place quite unlike anything any of us had experienced up until that point and also benefit from hearing Chinese musicians play Western music. So it was something that I think really one of the most unique experiences of my life, simply from the timing point of view, because this was before many people were able to even enter that country. I'm writing notes because I'm so fascinated by what you're saying, even though I've heard this story in our private conversations before. But before we reach that point, what do you think it was about China or it is about China for you that fascinated him and that continues to interest you today? Well, first of all, the places that we went to were quite stunningly beautiful. I have in front of me a little green diary with a sort of velveteen cover in it. It uh, has my name and my address in 1982. Very small writing. But for the period when I visited Beijing and Shanghai, and of course in those days it was called Peking, um, so in um, at that point in time, it is crammed full of the amazing places that we went to visit. The Temple of Heaven, Beihai Park, the Forbidden City, of course. We went to the Mao Mausoleum. We went to the Chinese Opera. We had the cultural exchange in, univer- in the conservatories of music. Um, we heard young Chinese musicians play. So all of this, we went to a fantastic tea house in Shanghai. It was so romantic and and so, I mean, you know, up until that point, we'd seen beautiful um, calligraphy writing, Chinese writing. We'd I'd seen um, pictures from you know from Chinese artists, very stylized but very very romantic. And suddenly, there we were transplanted 
from the UK, you know, where a line of shops along a a Broadway area was the norm. Suddenly we were transported into a very different environment where um, the the people obviously looked completely different, but it was so unwesternized and seemed in places a little bit haphazard. But then you would have these magnificent buildings and, and they just looked quite stunning and we were all we just went around for about two weeks with our mouths wide open and our jaws on the ground to a 17 year old who had been exposed already at that point through music to wonderful things and experiences of your own what did it do to you I think one of the things that it did was it fired up my imagination because when you travel and you see, you go outside your normal environment, and particularly at an impressionable age such as 17, you know, partway through teenage years, etc. I had travelled, but really only up, up until that point within Europe and only very, very traditional places such as France and Italy. So to go somewhere so in incredibly different where we were eating very different food we were seeing very different environments it just was it just fired up my imagination it it inspired me I think is a simple answer I was inspired You use the word romantic to describe that two-week visit to China. And just six years, six very short years before you arrived, that was the end of the Cultural Revolution, which in itself was the end of a decade of traumatic moments for millions of people who lived and lucky enough for those who survived it as well. When you were there, were there any traces or reminders or indicators that a very different time had existed right before you had stepped in? I think only very briefly. Our visit was very carefully organised and um, it was only, for instance, when we were being taken in a minibus to a few of the places that one caught sight of um, some uh, real poverty. And um, so, yes, we, we did see that. We weren't shown it specifically, but, you know, we, you couldn't help but notice that there were some streets where, um, you know, people had very little clothing on and it was perfectly obvious that there was real real poverty and deprivation there. But, I mean, obviously we weren't given the opportunity to see that aspect of things. It, it was, you know, a visit that was a cultural exchange. We were there to see the great buildings that had existed for many, many years. We were there to play music. We were there to hopefully inspire and certainly be inspired were you there were you sent and let's construct this carefully because Yehudi Menuhin the great violinist and conductor who many people say was perhaps the greatest musician of his century who was actually born in the United States though we forget that because he created an incredible career from his base later over in England Uh, when he brought you over 
and he handpicked a few students from the Menuhin school to go with him to China in 1982. Was it to show the Chinese how music is played? No, I don't think he was like that in any way, shape, or form. I think、um, the amazing thing about Yehudi was his feeling that、um, we are all eternal students. He always considered himself a student of life, and so as such, we all learn from each other. And I, I totally embrace that、uh, philosophy because we don't have all the answers. We will never have all of the answers, and the whole point of our lives, if you're going to be. Um, a kind of person that continues to develop and grow is that you cannot always have the answers. You must always retain an open mind. Sure, one can have an opinion, and you know we we all have certain opinions. But I think the whole point about a trip that we were lucky enough to embark on was that it was designed to show us how different. Life can be, and therefore that there is no one way of doing things. So I think that、um, Yehudi's、um, idea behind the trip was not for us as Westerners to go and show everybody else how it's done. Far from it. It was to let us know that we might have been learning music in a certain way, but there are so many different ways of playing music, and I think that that was another. Um, important message that I I received from this trip that actually the Chinese musicians that we heard were amazing. They played in very different ways to the way that we played, but it was wonderful. And they played with depth and passion and love of the music. And I tell you something else that I absolutely remember: something happened at a concert in China that I had up until that point never ever witnessed, and that was laughter in the concert hall. And I remember that it was a concert given by the Camerata Lisi, led by Alberto Lisi, a great friend of Yehudi's and a wonderful violinist. And they were playing a very quirky and fun piece. I don't remember the name of the composer, but I remember absolutely there was this one bit which was very funny. The music was funny. It was designed to promote a smile. More than that, it got belly laughter from the Chinese public, who had no inhibitions. Um, such as one would find in the West, no inhibitions whatsoever about overtly displaying their enjoyment of the music, and I loved it. I absolutely loved it, and I remember commenting afterwards to my friend Hannah, "Isn't it refreshing to hear laughter in the concert hall when the music's actually funny?" Your experience in China was so unique. Who did you meet at that time? Well, we met many people.、Um, you know, we met a lot of dignitaries. We we moved in some pretty high circles. I've no doubt. Must be said because Yehudi himself moved in those circles, and because I think there was quite a buzz surrounding our trip, and there was、um, a film crew that was following us. I remember my quartet and I were filmed playing at the Temple of Heaven outside wherever we went, and a group of a group of four of us were、um, sort of chosen, I suppose,、uh, as quite an important. Feature of the film, so our quartet went walking around the streets of Shanghai, and we were filmed walking around the streets of Shanghai and having tea in this amazing tea house. And wherever we went, we were literally stared at because we were. We were the only Westerners walking in the streets. You know, I mean, it's a far cry, of course, from from nowadays. But at that point in 1982, Western people simply. Didn't go well, to China. Actually, there are many parts of China today where I still think you would trigger the same reaction. <laughs> you know, we should try it one day. You yeah, bring your violin and we'll bring you to the depths of the valleys,、yes. and and you'll see that.、Mm. Um, 
the the diary that you have with us because we're sitting in your home and thank you for having me here which ironically is a couple of minutes down the road from where I grew up in London as well that's right yes you have collected a series of diaries uh, that document each year mm. of your life, probably from your teenage years mm, onwards. Mm. And the one that you have in mm, front of you mm. with that green velvet cover is mm. from 1982, mm. from that year. Let's see how much small my writing is. It was like you were in prison and you were given one sheet of paper to write <laughs> on. Right. But I know. You're flicking through yes. the pages now. If you slowly mm. continue doing that, would you pick something for us and perhaps share it? Absolutely. Um, so here we are. Um, so we arrived um, in China on Tuesday, August the 31st, 1982. Um, and I go, we rehearse. I mean, it's very condensed because I think literally we're so exhausted. I remember being jet lagged and exhausted at the end of each evening. Um, and barely having the energy to write. So it is literally in sort of shortcuts. There's no partying, form. was there? Well, I think, um, you know, that, that happened maybe towards the end of the visit, but <laughs> it, certainly not at the beginning. It was literally, it was so, so busy. So I just put, we rehearsed in the morning, in the afternoon we visited the Forbidden City, and in the evening we visited Beijing Opera. It was incredible. And then on the September the 1st, we visited the Great Wall and Ming Tombs. Fantastic. And then I had a quartet rehearsal. And then the next day, September 2nd, we visited Summer Palace, filmed the quartet at the Temple of Heaven. And um, we went to the acrobatics. Oh, that, I remember, was an extraordinary evening. i tell you what I do remember about that evening was that we went to, to see these fantastic Chinese acrobats. And um, we couldn't believe it when the one stunt that they were doing, which involved a big um, jumping in the air and somebody jumping up on something and throwing someone else into the air, and it didn't work. And I thought... Oh, and the, all the audience sort of went, oh, you know, we were sort of disappointed because it hadn't worked. And they did it again, and then it, it didn't work. And then they did it a third time, and of course it was immaculate. And we realised that this was the strategy, that they would deliberately get it wrong the first two times, just so that we could see how very difficult it was. And then on the third occasion, they would um, execute the manoeuvre perfectly. I think perhaps and... you could try that with a future concerto. <laughs> Standing in the Royal yes, Albert that's Hall, right, playing it terribly badly for the then... first two times. Say, well, this is how difficult it is, that's but right. I got it done right but the third exactly. time. Well, of course, by the time they got it right, the cheers and the roars and the applause were completely deafening because we did appreciate precisely. You know, it was it did give us an opportunity to see the intricacy of the movements that was involved because each time they got it wrong, a different bit would go wrong. So you could see exactly what they had to do in order to get it right. It wasn't just, you know, one-stop shop, as it were. It was a succession of immaculately executed manoeuvres that then resulted in the right person, you know, being thrown and sitting on top of a very high chair somewhere or other. So, I mean, it was very, very brilliant. You have an uncanny gift to participate in China's story at important parts and important points in its history. 1982 is spoken uh, to some length about, and I'm sure there are many, many more stories that you could share, but also 2003, right at the peak of SARS, when you went to Hong Kong, and I think you were the first international artist to go to Hong Kong right after the worst of SARS, which was not just so impactful there, but was 
in many ways the first new disease of the new century, mm. um, the first new virus. What was it like going there? Because, of course, that must have been very different to 1982. It couldn't have been more different, although I had actually visited and worked with the Hong Kong Philharmonic um, at least twice before. I can't remember exactly how many times, but I certainly had two visits um, to Hong Kong prior to that particular visit. And I remember it was David Atherton who was conducting and I was to play the Tchaikovsky concerto there. And um, what had happened was that all of the international artists had cancelled, every single one of them, for a period of quite a number of weeks. So for weeks and weeks, the Hong Kong Philharmonic um, was putting on concerts without any visiting soloists. And um, I spoke to David Atherton and I said, David, I really want to come. Um, can you, I've got two very young children. Is it, is it going to be safe? Um, am I going to be okay? And I'm thinking very specifically of returning to my children. He said, I state categorically, it's going to be fine. Please come. And I said, if you tell me it will be fine, I'm coming. And the I just remember walking on stage and of course I was looking at a sea of faces all covered with masks which in itself was quite an extraordinary experience. We the musicians were not wearing masks but the whole audience were. Um, were you wearing a mask at other times during your visit? No actually I don't I just I just trusted David actually and I um, he told me it was going to be fine and I went and it was fine um, but I remember the First of all, the response of the orchestra when I turned up, the first international artist in, I mean, literally months. Um, and then the incredible response from the audience before I'd even played a note, but just as I walked on stage, I mean, pr I practically got a standing ovation um, even before I'd played a note. And then I played my very, very, very best and tried my very, very, very hardest to give them the best that I could um, give them, you know, bearing in mind the fact that it was such a, an important occasion. And then I, I really did get a fantastic ovation from, from them. And I felt so happy that I'd gone and that I hadn't been, um, I hadn't found myself fearing um, that it wouldn't be, it wouldn't be possible to go. It was, it was the right decision 100%. Why did you make that decision? What made you go at a time when nobody else wanted to? I've always been that kind of a person, actually. I've um, always wanted to um, to do things that other people won't do. I mean, you know, right back in my earliest years, and this is never life-threatening, but I was the person that would play repertoire that no one else would play. Um, so I suppose, I don't know. I mean, there's something of the, as far as the composers is concerned, there's something of the feeling that I want to support an underdog. And so with composers who've been neglected, I've wanted to give them a voice, to, to let them be heard. And as far as um, going and, you know, playing in Hong Kong was concerned, I wanted to show the people there that we in, in, the, in the international community did want to go and that Hong Kong was an important enough, is an important enough um, area to, um, you know, to continue to go, you know, even if some people weren't going to go. And actually after that, in fact, um, all the other soloists uh, went and nobody cancelled from that moment onwards. So I felt very glad to be the one to sort of herald the way and go, come on, everybody, it's fine, really. Um, but I, I think I've, I've, always, <laughs> I've always had a certain element of courage about me, I guess. And um, just the feeling that if, if it felt OK to do something, that it, then it was OK to do something. And I've taken that into my work in prisons 
I've literally gone into cells of prisoners, gone in with the inmates into their general area when other people won't go in. I've gone in with my violin, not with a sort of decoy violin. I've actually gone in um, trusting that actually if I treat people with respect, I will myself be treated with respect. I've So far to this day, I've, I've never had a bad experience from that. Can music provide a lens to understand China as it did for you all those years ago? I think it's one of the big answers, really. And I'm not just saying that because I'm a classical musician. Yehudi had this vision. He was exactly right. He proved it by going into China when it was less open than it is now. He he knew that music was a way of um, extending a hand out and finding a connection with somebody, even if you couldn't speak the same verbal language. The language of music is an international language. And that's actually something that I feel answers a different part of your question, which is um, what is the role of China now uh, is, as a, you know, in musical circles? And I think I have got to say that I think that Chinese musicians are now accorded every bit as much respect on the international stage as any of their Western counterparts. And I think that it's because they have really applied um, great technical uh, skill and expertise and discipline allied to a strong sense of um, desire to understand um, this different Western music, but not just to understand it, to make it a part of themselves. And that's the answer, that it's about embracing it. It's, um, It's about looking for the similarities and also the unique quality that music has to touch the very deepest parts of us without our even knowing why or how. And so I really feel that, you know, as far as China on the international musical stage is concerned, China's already there. Um, there might be other differences that you've you've pointed out and touched on, um, but who knows uh, that you know maybe with enough common ground and with cultural interests that can um, be very similar, I I wonder whether this is a, a true way forward. Yehudi Menuhin was also a peace facilitator, before, during, and after, sometimes controversially, at uh, cost to himself, the Second World War where he reached out to people who were on the wrong side of history. He wanted to heal and he wasn't afraid to go against the grain in order to achieve that. We live in a world and at a time which is disturbing. You as a mother, you as a musician, you as a person, like all of us, can feel that as well or perhaps more acutely so. What do we need? I think we need um, to really have a lot more tolerance. We are different in many ways um, internationally, but we all have certain capacities to be similar. We ha- all of us, each human being has a capacity for kindness. Each human being has a capacity for love. Each human being also has a capacity to want to have friendship, to want to have um, a possibility to be accepted. And I think that some of our problems stem from a feeling of 
not being accepted and that stems from a lack of tolerance and a lack of understanding that they, there are differences between us but that doesn't mean that if you are different that somehow or other one party is wrong. There are many, many ways of living in this world and there are many ways of living peaceably and harmoniously but that cannot possibly happen if we expect everybody to live as we think they should. So it has got to surely be about us being able to let go of the sense that there is only one way of living in this life. It is about being open, it's about being tolerant, it's about being willing to be what Yehudi Menuhin was, an eternal student of life. Thank you very, very much. It's been a real pleasure. (laughs) 